Will America start raking its citizens just like communist China? This is Brief Before Impact. This episode is going to address the subject of China's social credit system. If you've never heard of it, here's the bottom line. China ranks its citizens. It assigns them a value based upon how well or how well they behave or how they misbehave. Some kind of metrics that the Chinese Communist Party thinks it's important. We're going to go through some of the details of that system and whether or not such a system could ever be adopted by the United States. Let me take a quick ad break and then we'll get to work. Now, welcome back, everyone. So let's outline what this social credit system looks like. Uh, according to Business Insider, the Chinese Communist Party has been constructing a moral ranking system for years that will monitor the behavior of its enormous population and rank them all based on their social credit. And that system, which was first announced in 2014, is an important component, part of the socialist market economy system and the social governance systems. And according to a government report in 2015, this system aims to reinforce the idea that keeping trust is glorious and breaking trust is disgraceful. So right there you can see that this system is all based upon about trust between the individual uh, Chinese citizen and the Chinese Communist Party. The system can be used for individual people or companies or government organizations. Now, the exact methodology is secret, but for example, here's some examples of infractions, you know, th wrongdoings that include bad driving, uh, smoking in non smoking zones, buying too many video games, posting fake news online, specifically about a terrorist attack or Airport security. Others punishable offenses could be like wasting money on frivolous purchases or just the social media posts that you make. Now, China has already started punishing people. Some of the punishments that are sent out to some of these individuals would be you could ban them or restrict their travel, for example. They could only buy certain plane tickets. They couldn't buy certain luxury options. Maybe by getting a, uh, rather than getting a business class train ticket, they are not able to have to get something in coach or they're kept out of the best hotels, for example. Additionally, uh, for according to an author, Rachel Botsman, she wrote a part of her book was about this issue. The government in China could actually throttle your internet speed as a punishment. Throttle meaning like speed up or speed or slow down. Now, uh, according to Foreign Policy Magazine, credit systems monitor whether uh, Chinese citizens pay their bills on times. You know, much like a financial credit tracker. But now they're ascribing a moral dimension to it. I'll give you a couple of examples. You and your kids could miss out on like the best jobs or the best schools. Back in 2017, there were 17 people, 17 Chinese citizens who refused to carry out military service. They were then barred from enrolling in higher education, applying for high school, or just continuing their studies, according to Beijing News. In July 2018, a Chinese university denied an incoming student his spot because the student's father had a bad social credit score for failing to repay a loan. Now, those are some of the punishments 
some of the benefits of being a good citizen in this social credit system would be you could get a discount on an energy bill or rent things without deposits, perhaps get a better interest rate from the bank. So China has now decided it's going to assign value to its citizens purely based upon metrics that the Chinese Communist Party believes in. And these aren't just metrics that are um, allow you to um, be viewed positively by the party. No, this is how you actually go out and live your life, taking out a business loan uh, to, to start up that new bakery that you have in mind, or you want to send your kids to the best school, they got the best grades. Now you have to toe the line with the Chinese Communist Party. That is what they're trying to create, a stability based around the Chinese Communist Party and its ideology. You step outside of the line of that, outside of the Chinese Communist box, then you will be punished. Now, the question we're trying to address today, could such a system ever be adopted by the United States? I want to portray and illustrate two situations where such a system is already informally being adopted by the West. Let me give you those two examples. Number one, credit cards. Number two, social media. So let's start with credit cards, for example. We're all familiar with our credit score, right? We want to you know, get a, get a good loan to buy a house. We have to have a good credit score. How do we build a good credit score? Well, we got to buy things on credit and pay off the bills. So generally, most people talk about their credit scores. They're meaning their FICO scores, right? About 90% of top lenders use FICO scores when deciding whether or not to give a loan or when deciphering an interest rate for the loan or even a borrowing limit. Here's the challenge. Someone who has, say, a a four-year degree from a good school in a lucrative industry, has a well-paying job, is an ideal candidate from a credit card company's perspective. An individual who most likely pay back his credit card or her credit card bill on a monthly basis. Now, let's um, compare that to something called the credit invisible. So, uh, according to Vox.com, there are millions of people who are considered credit invisible, meaning that they don't have credit that's treated as scorable under the current system, meaning they haven't taken out a credit card and bought stuff on it over and paid it off month after month. That's not how they built up their credit. Oftentimes, people who are black, Hispanic, or live in low-income neighborhoods are likelier to find themselves in this situation, being credit invisible, as are people in rural or even highly urban areas. Uh, as well as internet access appears to play a role in whether people are credit invisible too. And on these situations, it's not that people are or aren't reliable. It's just the current framework doesn't include them. So there are some people suggesting if there's going to be these invisible credit, credit invisible folks under the current framework, what ways can we uh, adjust the framework to incorporate more folks and, and ensuring that uh, even a low-income individual has the opportunity to access a credit card. Now, some of the new ways of assessing reliability are taking web history into account or getting artificial intelligence involved or just looking at someone's bank account. Let me give you my view of why that would immediately be a problem from a ideological point of view. Say a major credit card company. XYZ credit cards aligns typically left of center politically. 
Now they're evaluating individual A's credit history, and it's hard to decipher how reliable this person will be. So what they decide to do is to review that individual A's web history and the um, websites that he has visited in the past, as well as his social media post. The XYZ company notices that individual A often visits uh, right-of-center political websites and looks at conservative um, propaganda and makes conservative social media posts when it's related to politics. Well, XYZ company decides we don't want to um, assign a credit card to individual A because we don't like their ideological post. And here's where it could really become a problem. What if XYZ credit card company was then incentivized by the government to only assign credit cards to people who are aligned politically one direction or the other. You could quickly see how this framework that we have existing, assigning people credit or not, already favors one group over the other. What if we were to involve uh, multiple aspects of a person's life, web history, um, meetings attended, so forth and so on, anything that could track a person and who they are to try to determine the reliability of paying off a credit card bill. This could quickly become an opportunity for one political party or even another, left or right, to use it as a tool to punish its enemies. Let's pivot to social media. Since, in my mind, 2016, President Trump was elected, the idea of social media and from people being banned from it or uh, censored really came to the forefold. Trump, as everyone knows, was a very bombastic character and tweeted anything that was on top of his mind. This came across to both traditional media outlets as frustrating because he had direct access to his followers. As far as the tech companies were concerned, most of them are typically aligned left of center politically. And... Now their platforms are becoming the, the bully bullpit for a president who they were not aligned to at all, and many often believed that he was a, a threat to democracy itself. So let's discuss how President Trump was banned from social media platforms and where Americans stand on that issue, generally speaking. So according to some research by Pew Research Organization, while most Republicans do not support permanently barring Trump from social media. There are some ideological differences within the party. About 9 out of 10 Republicans say Trump's accounts should not be permanently banned. But there there is a share lower among the moderate and liberal Republicans who, who say it should be. Among Democrats, liberals are somewhat more likely than conservatives and moderates to favor a permanent ban. But there are large majorities, though there are large majorities in both ideological groups who do favor this permanent ban. Americans, just the citizens themselves, are split on whether Trump should be barred from social media. 49% of U.S. adults, essentially half of this country, say Trump's accounts should be permanently banned from social media. And the other half said they should not be. But views are deeply divided along partisan lines, which... Do they vote right or to the left? That's kind of a way this issue has become split. Here's the challenge. If a tech company, a social media company, decides to remove an individual from its platform based on one, two, three reasons, how does that compare across 
all the individuals who are speaking on that platform. Let me give you an example of Twitter. Twitter, obviously, which was one of Trump's favorite platforms. Twitter banned uh, Donald Trump from from using Twitter ever again. Here's, but they still allow Twitter still allows the Taliban to use Twitter. It also allows uh, the Ayatollah of Iran to use Twitter. Let me highlight Taliban since we're kind of in a more in our minds since August and the withdrawal from Afghanistan from the U.S. troops. Taliban's now back in power in Afghanistan. We are all aware of the brutal atrocities that the Taliban has performed in the country of Afghanistan. Yet it still it still has a presence on Twitter. Now traditional media here in the United States has gone on to defend Twitter in the decision to allow to allow Taliban to operate on that platform, but to ban Trump permanently. Washington Post had said uh, and published a defense of uh, the Taliban still remaining on Twitter, saying, quote, for a group that espouses ancient moral codes, the Afghan Taliban has used strikingly sophisticated social media tactics to build political momentum, and now that they're in power, to make a public case that they're ready to lead a modern nation state after nearly 20 years of war. How is it that a brutal regime like the Taliban can exist on Twitter, but Donald J. Trump, who is bombastic and childish at times, cannot be allowed to operate on Twitter? Is this an actual enforcement of true standards? You know, the quote-unquote community guidelines of Twitter or any of these other social media platforms? Or is this an ideological battle allowing what information these tech companies want out and what information they do not? Let me give you what I would consider a non-political example. Donald Trump, politician, so I can understand that's obvious, oh, well, this is why the tech companies do or do not support that individual. What about public health? We're all aware of the challenge of COVID over the last two years. Let me give you the example of Dr. Robert Malone. Who is Dr. Malone? He's an American virologist and immunologist, and he's worked has focused on the mRNA technology. That technology is what allows the modern COVID, COVID-19 vaccines to exist. So he had a huge role in creating that technology. The reason I bring him up, because he was um, recently banned from Twitter from what they said was repeated violations of its COVID-19 misinformation policy. He was, uh, Dr. Malone was being interviewed recently on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, number episode number 1757. I recommend you go listen to it on Spotify. And the, he, he was highlighting this, the... Uh, all this backlash that Dr. Malone had received uh, over his comments over the vaccine, public health um, authorities, and etc. And the clips of the Joe Rogan experience were removed off of YouTube because particularly over Dr. Malone's comparison of U.S. public health authorities and the German Nazi party during its rise to power in the 1930s and 1940s. YouTube has not publicly released a reason for its takedown, saying simply that it violated the platform's community guidelines. Take a quick listen to that interview with Joe Rogan and Dr. Malone. Here it is. 
they removed you for not going along with whatever the tech narrative is because tech clearly has uh, a censorship agenda when it comes to COVID in terms of treatment, in terms of the, the wh whether or not you are promoting what they would call vaccine hesitancy. They can ban you for that. They can ban you for, in, in their eyes, what they think is a justifiable offense. And they're doing this. And I don't know who these people are that are doing this, but they're doing these this one of the most important things about you reading out your history like that is to one of the most qualified people in the world to talk about vaccines. Thank you for that. I, I think that that's so one way that some people put it is and of course, since this has happened, I've been contacted by multiple lawyers that are looking at filing a suit just like Alex Berenson has one against Twitter. Um, and, and the point is made just what you just made. Uh, um, if so, the point that I, I think is kind of succinct on this is, um, if my voice, if it, if there's no merit to my voice being in the conversation, whether I, it's true or not, whether I'm factually correct or not, let's park that just for a minute. Whether or not I'm right in everything I say, and I freely admit, no one's perfect. I'm not perfect. It's one of my core points is people should think for themselves. I try really hard to give people the information and help them to think, not to tell them what to think. Okay. Um, but the point is, if, if I'm not, if, if it's not okay for me to be part of the conversation, even though I'm pointing out scientific facts that may be inconvenient, then who is, who can be allowed? Um, and uh, whether you're in the camp that says I'm a liar and I didn't invent this technology despite the patents, and there's a whole cohort of that, no one can debate that dispute that I played a major role in the creation of this tech. And virtually all other voices that have that background have conflicts of interest, financial conflicts of interest. I think I'm the only one that doesn't. I'm not getting any money out of this. So there you have Dr. Malone essentially defending his the validity of his opinions. If anyone should be able to have a voice on the public health response to COVID-19, Dr. Malone should be one of those individuals. But his comments are not aligned with the, the outline and the ideology of major tech companies in the United States. Therefore, he gets banned. How do I see this moving forward for the United States? Could the United States fully adapt to such a system? And I would propose that in, in a formal way, the social credit system that China has is being partially adapted here in the United States without political endorsement. Meaning there is no one political party, Republican or Democrat, who is saying this should be legislation. To further highlight that example, uh, Kristen Tate, writing for The Hill, she notes that PayPal has announced recently a partnership with the left-wing Southern Poverty Law Center to investigate the role of white supremacists and propagators of anti-government rhetoric. Subjective labels that could potentially impact a large number of groups or people using their service, their service being PayPal. Now, PayPal says the collected information will be shared with other financial firms and politicians. Facebook is even taking measures, recently introducing a message that asks users to 
effectively snitch on their potentially extremist friends, which considered the platform's bias seems mainly to target the political right. At the same time, Facebook and Microsoft are working with several other web giants and the United Nations on a database to block potential extremist content. So what we have is private companies here in the United States taking upon themselves to decide who can and who cannot exist on their platforms based upon ideological viewpoints on domestic and foreign policies. So to transition to, and close out with our courses of action, will this happen in the United States? Which, which ways do we see this moving forward? Most likely, this course of action in my assessment is that you'll continue to see left-wing politicians continuing to insist that tech companies do more to censor their political opponents. And you'll see right-wing politicians most likely demand any speech, with the exception of speech that incites violence, being allowed on all social media platforms and having individuals of every political viewpoint being able to exist on other technology and the websites that they have. For our most dangerous course of action, in my viewpoint, it would be for a, a unity of major tech companies to systemically begin ranking individuals based on their social media post, their financial purchases, and their web browsing history, thus allowing these companies to determine who is allowed and who's prohibited to utilize these internet-based services. My conclusion is that I think it's very possible the U.S. could see a rise in two types of internet companies. You have those companies that are aligned to the political left and those that are aligned to the political right, and they're going to grow in parallel to one another. And that's, all that's going to do is further deepen the divisions in our society and potentially allow this type of social credit system to be adopted, more become more mainstream and more um, accepted more broadly across our society. So thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this topic uh, this week. And as always, I do hope you are picking up what I'm putting down. I am Matt Parker. This is Brief Before Impact. Thank you.